My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Jerry Fu, who is a conflict resolution coach for Asian American leaders. He started coaching in 2017 to help other Asian American professionals deal with the challenges they encounter at work, with their families, and within themselves. Prior to starting his coaching business, Jerry worked as a pharmacist and began facilitating leadership workshops. Today, Jerry offers a range of coaching services, which includes individual coaching, group workshops, and keynote presentations. To contact him, I'll have his website in the show notes, but it's adaptingleaders.com. And uh, just real quick, let me, let me thank you, Jerry, for, for coming on the show and allowing me to interview you. Uh, we've had a minute to get to know each other and just you know, reading a little bit about you, uh, I've got a sense of where this conversation is going to go, and uh, I'm pretty excited to dig in, but, you know, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, for sure. First, I, I read that you're you're in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, you're in Houston, right? Yes, yeah. Now, where were you born in Texas? Uh, Wisconsin, actually. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so you were born and raised in Wisconsin? Uh, for the start of my life. Um, my dad's job took us down to uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, actually, when I started sixth grade. And I, I finished high school there. And my first taste of Texas was an undergraduate when I, I came to Houston for college at Rice. And when I decided on pharmacy school as the next step in my life, I moved back up to Tennessee. And then uh, after I graduated, I worked in Tennessee for a little bit before moving back down to Houston. I see that your focus is uh, primarily Asian American professionals, and I, I'm guessing because it's uh, probably some cultural differences that mm -hmm. that you are able to address. Is that yeah? So can we talk a little bit about that? And maybe um, maybe let's start with with your life growing up, some of your early influences and. And maybe some of those cultural things that are are prominent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, growing up, um, you know, my parents, you know, did what they could as immigrants just to kind of make a nice life for themselves, right? Just you know, try to keep your head down, mind your own business, don't do anything that might antagonize people or upset them, right? If you have to fit in, uh, even if there's things that you're uncomfortable with or disagree with, just put those aside and, you know, you just complain later, basically. And so growing up, this is the model that I, I saw my parents uh, use a lot when they were hosting friends or, uh, you know, company out of town or just dealing with internal things, right? Um, and, you know, there was just this need to placate 
basically that you know would hold the situation over for a while until enough resentment built up where you know finally like uh the arguments would come out and the frustration would come out and then you had to deal with a bigger mess than had you learned to uh deal with the conflicts initially right well the fire is still relatively small um one example i can give you is um when a, a, a college friend of mine when he came uh to visit over the summer you know i asked my mom hey you know can we'll call him gary can gary stay with us for a couple of days and hang out and she's like oh yeah sure you know yeah um uh, yeah have a good time so gary comes by and you know my mom is a perfectly gracious host and you know after a couple of days you know gary leaves you know my mom's like as soon as he leaves my mom's like you know can you believe gary like he didn't clean up after himself in the bathroom like he left hair everywhere he didn't make his bed right because the unwritten or unsaid expectation when you know you stay at a host's place is that you leave the place as you found it or better right but you know for a lot of people they're a little more laid back and you know like for a lot of us, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. Hey, the host came or, you know, the guest came that we, you know, we just clean up after them. But, um, you know, an Asian uh, mindset, like the idea is to be as respectful of other people's property as possible. Right. And so that means, yeah. And so on one hand, we have this unsaid expectation that we hopefully he would understand and figure out on his own. But since he did it right now, we just kind of vent our frustration, hopefully get over it. And then we just make sure we just never invite him back again. And so this is the kind of conflict resolution um, approach that I, I saw for myself that, you know, for better or worse, I used, you know, you know in, in my own interactions, um, you know, to my detriment, right? Um, same thing happened in retail pharmacy. Uh, you know, a patient or a customer would want something unreasonable or inappropriate. And we would try to stand our ground by saying no, and so then just, they just went above our heads to corporate, complained to corporate and corporate would say, no, we don't want to deal with it. Just, just give them what they want because we need their money. And so you just went home and just, you just hated yourself because you just felt like you were disrespected. These, these lessons apply to everybody when it comes to conflict resolution, but what are some, some of the common mistakes that people make with conflict? Yeah, sure. Um, happy to share my own mistakes in the process because I've, I've made them. They're common. Uh, the first is avoidance, right? Um, people think that if they create enough distance or they just keep their head down, that somehow the problem will go away on its own. And occasionally a problem might solve itself, but that's the, you know, the very small uh, exception and not the rule, right? Uh, for instance, when I was working on my pharmacy jobs, right, if a technician typed up a a prescription incorrectly, right? Maybe I give them the benefit of the doubt once, maybe they say, hey, it was busy. You have no overlook it. I'll just fix it. We'll move on. But then it happens again, right? Now it's my choice whether or not I need to engage them or to just continue to compensate for them, right? And so um, if I choose to engage, right, maybe we figure out exactly what the problem is. We figure out how to fix it. Done. But if I am afraid to upset them or they, I'm afraid of dealing with someone who gets defensive, you know, or they push back, you know, and I'm like, well, I don't want to have this argument. So I'm just going to work twice as hard now to compensate for the fact that this technician is making mistakes, right? Now I'm doing two jobs for the price of one. So yeah, that is a, a common um, mistake. Uh, the second is charging ahead um, with, without any real research, right? When people think, okay, 
I see enough evidence to be upset. I'm going to charge it. I'm going to tell the technician why, you know, she's doing wrong, what she needs to do about it and make sure she doesn't let it happen again. Maybe there was a misunderstanding I wasn't aware of because I didn't check myself and actually assess the territory before I engaged, right? Now I have to apologize for two things. Number one, for getting the story wrong. And number two, you know, hurting someone's feelings, you know, unnecessarily, right? A third mistake is interrupting. When people listen to respond instead of listening to listen, right? People don't like being disrespected. And when you are quick to cut them off, it shows you're not actually paying attention to them or giving them the, you know, the respect they need as, as humans to really have a, a strong relationship. So those are the three common mistakes um, I do. And then a fourth actually is thinking that conflict is conformance. Like somehow I need to get this other person to conform to my way of thinking and see why they am right. And um, just uh, trust that uh, they just need to do what I say as a recommendation to, uh, uh, to solve the problem. That kind of leads us into some tips that, that you may have to resolve conflict effectively. Yeah, let me go over uh, the five-step framework available as a, as a downloadable free guide on my, on my website. Uh, the first step is to imagine what success sounds like, right? Think about, hey, you know, um, success may or may not be restoring the, the relationship to 100%. You know, success may mean finding a truce with someone that you get in arguments with. Success may mean firing that employee that is consistently underperforming. So I need to be clear about what success is, but uh, you just need to imagine, hey, you know what, maybe this conversation could go well, and you allow for that possibility. So yeah, first imagine that, hey, you know what, maybe this could be really great. Uh, at the very least, they could receive my feedback well, and then that's the end of it. Um, second step is to find 10 seconds of courage because a lot of people think they need to feel like a superhero, right? They need to have the cape and the costume on before they engage. And if you wait until you feel like you're ready, that may be three months, that might be six months. By then, you know, you've not just avoided the problem, you've lost the company, right? Uh, and so 10 seconds of courage, right? just is just enough to stretch yourself to say, okay, let me pick up the phone. Let me send that email. Let me, you know, uh, send that text. And so you set things in motion and then you lock the gate behind you because uh, if you allow yourself to default to comfort, you're probably going to stay there. So in this case, you don't have to be a hero, right? You just need to just do enough to get started. So that is step two. Step three is to script your critical moves. Let's say someone wants to ask their boss for a raise, right? And they're like, well, you know, I, I need, I don't know what kind of case I need to make except asking for more money. It's like, okay, well, why don't you take some time to not just let your thoughts rattle around up here, but get them out on paper, right? Make sure you list everything possibly that you might want to say to your boss, right? You also want to anticipate uh, pushback that your boss may give you to say, oh, hey, money's tight or no, you know, I don't have enough evidence to really justify why you should, I should pay you more money, right? So you wanna organize your thoughts. Then you want to, step four, is to rehearse those moves, right? Practice in front of a mirror. Do you command you know, confidence? Do you come across as assured? Do you have good posture? You know, Are you scared when you say the number that you're hoping to get, right? Get a friend to role play with you, right? To be that boss that what you know you can go back and forth with because you want to spar in the dojo before you fight on the street, right? Um, anyone would tell you to practice. 
And then step five is to do it, right? The cost of not engaging is worse than the cost of trying and failing. But a lot of people forget that, right? Because what happens if I just too scared to ask my boss for a raise? Am I going to trust that maybe next year he'll actually give me one? It's like, you could, but why wait that long? And why be resentful for the entire time up until he, uh, you know, brings up the topic, assuming he ever does, right? And so that was the best, uh, that was a big tip for me was recognizing that the cost of avoiding was worse than the cost of trying and failing. Going back to, to your childhood and, and really learning from your environment, these, these cultural norms and, and really assimilating to the, you know, keep your head down, you know, mm -hmm. don't make waves, that kind of thing. Yeah. What are, what are some tips or, you know, what are some things that you would coach your younger self to to do or be or or how to act in a more uh or let's say take on more of a leadership role or persona yeah yeah great great question um the first thing i need to realize was uh it's okay to you know bring things up gently like if you just ask about something, it's okay. Like John Maxwell, one of my favorite phrases from him is he says, people don't always do as expected, but they always do as inspected. And so I'll give an example. Like at one point in college, a friend of mine, um, I had bought a, a packet of, of material for a class, but I, I decided I wasn't going to use it. And so she asked, well, can I use it? And I said, sure, here you go. And, you know, I paid money for that. And you know, she never gave me any compensation, right? And I was just so afraid to ask, hey, you know what, you know, that cost me money, you know, could you at least, you know, pay me for it or half or something or compensate me something, right? Because I'm not just going to give this away for free, but I never brought it up with her, right? Because I was, I was just like, well, you know, money's a sensitive topic and I don't want to upset her or make it sound like I'm trying to like rip her off. And it's like, no, you just, you just need to ask her if she's willing to pay you for something you paid for, right? I think that's a fair thing to do. So I would just, that's one thing I would coach my former self on is just to, hey, you know what? You don't have to be afraid of bringing things up, you know, as long as you do it in a gentle way, you don't have to, you know, it should be fairly well received, right? In the worst case scenario, oh, you know, I shouldn't have to pay you for that, da, da, da. It's like, well, at least I understood why she didn't plan on paying me for it, right? But instead I just assumed the worst and just said, well, you know, if she doesn't think she should pay me for me, I guess I'm just going to have to settle, right? Um, another thing I would tell myself is, hey, um, your boss wants results, not stories. Um, you know, basically, I used to think that as long as I had a good enough story as to why I didn't get the job done, that somehow, like, my boss would be okay with that. And that doesn't work, <laughs> you know? Um, it's kind of like if I would complain about being single. And then, you know, I'm just like, oh, like this just isn't fair. And I just keep getting shot down. And people would ask me, you know, I would just tell myself, well, do you want pity or do you want a girlfriend? Right. And this is the kind of thing, right? Businesses like survive because they get results, not because of excuses, right? Excuses don't compensate. But in my, in my younger self and my aversion to failure and my aversion to look incompetent, I would just avoid these things and just give reasons why I shouldn't have to engage them. And it's like, okay, um, I need to learn from a much younger age that this is not 
this isn't going to fly and not like out of shame, but just say, Hey, look, you know, the best thing that you can do is get results. Don't, don't settle for stories. Um, if I had to round it out with the third one, um, I'll tell myself, Hey, you know, in the same vein, failure is not fatal, right? Listen, the, the power of a no is good on both sides. Whether you say no to something, an activity or an opportunity you're just not that interested in, it's okay to say no. You don't have to people please and like think that they want a yes when you really don't want to give them one. And the same thing is also true if someone tells you no. If I ask a girl and she says no, it's like, it's okay. Um, you know, thank you. Thank her for not wasting more of your time, right? That no is the power to move on. So those are some things I would coach myself on uh, if I had the chance to travel back in time. I'd like to get a, a sense of your career path. You, you went to school, you became a pharmacist, and now you're a coach. So can you kind of walk me through this and, and maybe lay out some of your experiences that really shaped your leadership philosophy and, and your, your coaching style? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the themes that we just went over, I hope people, it's not hard to pick up on how these played out in my career path. Um, the first uh, is that in college, right? I was actually originally pre-med. I thought I was going to go to med school after I finished college. And then I got to see an organic chemistry and, you know, in Asian minds, right? They're just like, just don't bother. Right. I couldn't deal with the shame of the idea of being rejected from med school. And so I just said, well, okay, I'm just, just not going to deal with that, but I still want to do healthcare. So what else could I do? And so I said, well, pharmacy seems like a pretty viable alternative. Let me convince pharmacy school that I'll make a good pharmacist and okay, I'm going to go to pharmacy school. And so here, after finishing pharmacy school, I got into, you know, some heated debates with my mom about what kind of job uh, I, I should take. And there was a, a chain pharmacy she was a big fan of you know, that we had a friend who worked for and she says, hey, you should work for this company because she didn't want me to deal with some of the career challenges my dad dealt with growing up. Uh, my dad uh, ended up getting a total of two masters, one in chemical engineering, one in computer science and still struggled to find consistent work. And so she says, well, you know, I want you to have stability. I don't want you to struggle like he had. So just take this chain pharmacy job. My mom has never worked a day in her life in pharmacy, but you know, mom's no best. So, you know, and I was in my own conflict aversion, right? I just didn't feel like dealing with her arguing anymore. So, okay, fine, mom, I'll, I'll take this job. Um, didn't take long for me to regret that decision, but then I got complacent. And when I actually ended up in a situation within the company where I had a lot of flexibility scheduling and I was making good money, I just left it alone because I was like, well, situations like this are rare. So let me, you know, make the most of this. But once that went away on its own, um, I moved to a, a busier store that uh, I, I didn't have the flexibility that I used to. And I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm not happy again. And it took a really bad customer service incident where, you know, I ran out of nice things to say to this lady. And even worse, after I hung off the phone, my partner gives me their earful for not handling it better, even though I knew I did the best I could to, um, you know, apologize to the patient and, and try to find a solution. And so that was, this was like five years in and I was like, okay, no, I, I have to get out of here. I have to find something else. But the problem is, right. I wasn't working on my career at all. I was just happy just to coast working for a chain pharmacy. And so when I wanted to get into teaching pharmacy students, I didn't have a lot of options, but 
thankfully, uh, my network came through for me and uh, a friend of mine who worked for a consulting company uh, here in Houston, uh, pharmacy consulting company said, hey, you know, I got promoted. My previous teaching position is uh, still available. Um, do you want to apply for it? And I said, absolutely. And so I, I submit my resume. I convinced them that I'm worth taking a chance on. And so next thing I know, I'm moving from Knoxville to, to Houston uh, for this teaching job. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, this is a great company. I, I hope it's the last company I ever have to work for. And, you know, one of my tasks was to help draft uh, test questions. And uh, unfortunately for me, I ran into writer's block a lot sooner than I wanted to. <laughs> and so um, somehow I convinced myself that if, as long as I told my boss as to why I didn't get the job done, that she would be okay with it. And that didn't go well. <laughs> and so unfortunately for me, right, that, was, that just set a very bad precedent for me. And now I lost my boss's trust in the next couple of months where I was just playing uphill, uh, trying to earn back the favor that I wasted away. It didn't go well for me. And so after 11 months, the company said, we've had enough of this. We don't know what's going on with you, but um, you need to go. And that was hard for me to admit that, um, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, blame my unfair boss or other circumstances that just happened to be very unfortunate. But I didn't want to admit that when I looked back at the body of work I gave them that I would fire me too, right? So that was hard. And so the next six weeks, I'm just like, well, I can't move back to Knoxville. They filled my previous position already. So I had to figure out a way in Houston to survive. And unfortunately for me, uh, me being naive about, you know, some of the shady people out there, I end up at an independent pharmacy where uh, I was filling for crooked doctors and four of my paychecks bounced. So I was jeopardizing my license and I wasn't even getting paid for it. And even worse, you know, I'm still conflict averse. So I'm upset with my boss, but I don't know how to confront him, right? And even a side note, right? I was mailing my checks home because I didn't have a local bank account. I'd never bothered setting one up. And so when the first check bounced, my boss initially called me and apologized. He's like, hey, you know, there was a glitch or some kind of thing. Um, you know, we'll, we'll take care of it. I was just like, okay, good. You know, one time, yeah, weird stuff happens, fine. But then two, three, and four bounce, but I'm mailing these checks home and I don't know about it until after, you know, uh, he tells me, oh, hey, yeah, other problems. And then I call my mom um, and I'm like, mom, did you know about this? And she goes, yeah, but I was just too afraid to tell you. It's like, mom, like, this is not news that uh, you, can, you should avoid telling me, right? You can't just uh, avoid telling me bad news because it's bad. Like, this is bad news I need to act on. Right. And so, you know, again, this theme of conflict aversion, just very unhealthy. Right. And so anyway, thankfully, after enough, um, enough problems, I, my friends got me out of that situation, got me out with another company that was more legitimate, but money was really tight. They said, hey, we can't pay you more than eight hours a week. I was like, OK, now what do I do? They said, well, if you're willing to work out in Austin, uh, which is two and a half hours away, uh, you can get more hours. And so I said, okay, I could end up in worse places, but I have no idea what life is going to look like at this point. So this is 2012 now. And so that summer, um, some friends of mine who run a pharmacy leadership nonprofit said, hey, one of our facilitators had to back out for our national meeting. Would you be interested in stepping in? And I said, absolutely. And so for a while, right, leadership was just something I wasn't good at. And I had failed enough to feel like I would never be good at it. 
Um, and so I just avoided it. But now after teaching leadership, something kind of unlocked in my head. And I said, well, what if I could be a good leader, right? What if, what would that take? What kind of work would that involve? How would I care myself? And uh, yeah, a key person, as you uh, I'm sure want to ask about, is a pharmacist named Michael Negretti. And when I co-facilitated with him, I saw how he brought out the best in me. I saw how I was motivated to work really hard for him and come through for him. And I said, wow, how did he do that? And so I studied his style. I slowed down and I studied the blueprint. I said, wow, Michael is fun to be around. You know, he's always approachable. I like that. Number two, Michael is fun to learn from. He's always reading something interesting. And so I want to hear about what he's learning about. So now I want to learn too. Number three, Michael works hard. Man, there's no question about if he has to stay up late to get a task done or spend extra time or spend extra resources. It's, it's no problem. He just, there's no question how hard he works and sets a good tone. Number four, he's always creating he's always adjusting he's always collaborating he's always like tinkering and experimenting and he's like hey you know i i switched this around and then he collaborates and invites me to collaborate with him hey i made these changes what do you think of them so now i'm much more engaged because he's like hey your input is valuable i need your help with this right and so this is the blueprint that i follow um and internalize when i realize i need to become a better leader and so i put my own spin on things um i certainly don't want to just be a Michael Negretti clone. But even if I were, it's still a really effective leadership style. So those are some of the things that I took on. But um, back to the career path, right? So later that fall, I had the chance to either stay part-time in Austin or take on a full-time manager position that had opened up in Houston. And so I said, okay, I can't stay scared. I'm ready to come home. I'm going to take on this challenge of being a manager. I proceed to get written up the following year because my technicians are not pulling their weight and I'm just refusing to write them up or fire them. And so management says, this is a problem, they're a problem, and your passivity is a problem. And I was like, okay, that really hurts, but it's true. I need to do something about that. And so thankfully, I managed to push one technician out the door, just out of sheer luck. And then shortly after that, the company had their funding pulled. And so I said, well, you know, what do I do? And so thankfully, I randomly got another job opportunity to interview for. And the only reason they even agreed to interview me was that I had leadership experience on my resume now. And so that's why I say that leadership saved my career, because, you know, it gave me job options that wouldn't have had otherwise. And that being said, the job options still uh, didn't last very long. Smaller companies that offer a higher quality of life, uh, get stamped out pretty ruthlessly by, you know, big chain pharmacy and insurance companies. And so four years ago, when my previous employer went under, I said, well, I'm tired of chasing scripts and tired of fighting insurance companies that dictate how much I can make. Uh, but I love teaching the leadership workshops, which I've done consistently since 2012. Um, what if I tried to make a career in coaching? What would that look like? Still very scared of failure and rejection. So this was more of a hobby for me at that point when I first declared myself a coach. And I tell people, Dave, it took a pandemic for me to say, what am I waiting for? How much longer can I put this off? You know, so last October, I filed the LLC, got the website up, and here we go. So now that you're, you're off on, on your own, mm. coaching, coaching leadership, coaching yeah. conflict resolution, yeah. what are 
what are some questions that you ask yourself mm-hmm. so that you remain self-aware and are performing at your highest level to, to deliver to your clients? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, the first question to ask is, you know, what is my hesitation costing me? You know, when I'm afraid that a client's going to say no or ignore an email, right? Like it's that classic basketball analogy. You take zero, you make 0% of the shots you don't take, right? Um, and I have to remind myself of that daily. Hey, you know, um, that is, so that is the first question to say, hey, what is my, you know, what is my fear of rejection costing me as well? Uh, another is, you know, what's the most important thing I can do today? You know, is it creating content? Is it doing market research? Is it uh, networking with, with other podcast hosts? You know, what is the most important thing I need to take care of today? And so, yeah, I mean, because there are times I'll get trapped in the urgent, right? And I just want to feel good about getting something done. So I do the, the most immediate thing, uh, even though it's not the most important thing. And sometimes, you know, there's some merit to that, but at the end of the day, right, it's still procrastinating. Like if you're not taking care of the most important thing, it's procrastinating. Other things I ask myself, you know, yeah, uh, you know, what, what can I delegate, right? Uh, you know, what are some tasks that are maybe smaller that I can outsource to other people? Um, other things, what do I need to say no to, right? Um, too often, I will settle for distractions uh, just because, you know, my energy level is not up to par or, you know, I just don't feel like working. And uh, yeah, so those are some things I like to ask myself in order to keep on track. And then, yeah, finally, if I'm in a coaching session or doing a workshop, right? Yeah, how do I ask myself, what do I ask myself, you know, how do I really add value to my client, right? You know, what are they really looking for? Uh, what is the best help I can give them? And, you know, I can have an idea and I need to trust that they're going to be honest with me in case my guess doesn't line up with what they actually need. And that's okay. The most important thing is that uh, we're willing to listen and adjust accordingly so that uh, the relationship stays strong. What was your primary reason for focusing your coaching business toward Asian Americans? Yeah, great question. Um, so to zoom out for a second, we uh, talk in coaching, we talk about niching. Um, and so the coach who says, oh, yeah, I can help everybody. Big deal, right? Nothing special about that. Um, so in niching down, we have to ask ourselves, well, who is your ideal client, right? Who would you love to work with? And a common uh, clue is to ask yourself who you were 10 years ago. And so uh, in the same way, I know I struggle with cultural upbringing and what was said to me about how to handle conflict um, is the same conflict that I know other Asian Americans in their mid-20s and early 30s are also dealing with. And so that is why you know, I specifically want to focus, number one, on Asian American leaders, because I know um, they're having similar challenges as to what I went through going down this path. And then also... Uh, specific to that skill set of conflict resolution, because, you know, our tendency is to avoid the difficult and we'd rather just hope that things go away on their own. And so that is my uh, reason for niching down. Uh, Number one, from a business decision, but also number two, just from a passion um, uh, point of view, where it's just like, hey, here are the people I'm most excited to help. One of the things that we kind of skirted over 
we we touched on it prior to beginning the the interview but what fits right in to the to the overall theme of this show from embers to excellence is when when you lost your job and you had these experiences that i mean like i've experienced it myself where you're just like you know what do i do now like i i've just lost this path that i laid out for myself like it's not even there anymore so what do i do now and for for a lot of individuals whether it's leaders or people that never saw themselves as leaders they find themselves at a crossroads they they are either willing to accept their fate and accept the doom and gloom and you know just dissolve into you know the abyss or they take what they've learned they take this experience this negative energy that has been consuming them and they use that energy to you know blaze a new path and and really it may not take you to a different uh, end result, but it takes you on a different path to achieve your ultimate purpose, you know? And maybe it's a path that helps you really realize your ultimate purpose that maybe you ignored your entire life, you know, who knows? But in, in this experience of yours, can we maybe get down like, you know, not just a, a high, like bird's eye view of, of your experience, but dig in a little bit and maybe some of the things that really energized you to go, you know, that's, that's enough of the pity party. Let's get this show going. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great questions. Um, you know, I think of a Lewis Howes quote where he says, you're only as strong as your adversity makes you. Um, that's one thing that comes to mind. And I didn't want to admit that that was true. Um, you know, leadership was a huge struggle for me. And the irony is that the more I struggle with it, the more fascinated I became with it, right? Um, seeing it modeled for me well, also kind of inspired me to say, hey, you know what? I want to do that too. Um, and so, yeah, basically, right? Uh, putting yourself uh, in, you know, reasonable challenges, um, whether calculated or not, is really the kind of the best way to make yourself grow up. Um, and I'll give an example, just so people, we're not just talking in vague terms. Um, one challenge that really shaped me was when I served as a, a church class director at one point. And my second day on the job, I found out that a newer guy in the class was sexually harassing women in the class. And um, the woman that came to me with their concerns said, hey, you got to deal with this. You're a director. 
it's like frick you didn't give me a manual <laughs> you know just run toward the gunfire just gotta handle it fall on this grenade it's like frick i didn't even know and so you know i i happened to be going on vacation the next day so i couldn't even you know get this guy face to face i had to get you know pick up the phone and you know reach out to this guy and discuss this very heavy topic with him this very you know serious allegation you know and try to figure out exactly what he's how he's going to respond so we'll call him nick so i call up nick you know i'm like hey nick so these women say you're sexually harassing them like what's going on because i don't know what they're talking about i don't know what they're talking about you know i would never do something like that blah 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 right and so i had to tell him i was like well nick look you know I could, I could have just said, well, hey, as long as this is on the table, you just got to leave. Like I could have done that because I had that right as director. But the, I think the healthier approach is what ended up playing out, right? I, I had no manual. All I knew is I, I knew enough to set it in motion, just trust that I was just going to improvise my way to the finish line, right? And so, you know, when I told him, I said, hey, look, Nick, there's three possibilities here. One, you are correct and they are lying. You know, I, it's not for me to say who is right because I wasn't there. But if if you are right about your innocence and and they are, you know, ultimately just criticizing you, uh, this sounds like it's a misunderstanding. Just go clear it up, figure out exactly what you're doing that's bothering them. Just don't do it anymore. That's it, right? It could be that simple. Possibility number two: they are right and you are wrong, which means you're lying, and also you're doing inappropriate things, which means that if you expect to stay part in their class. Uh, go to them, apologize, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Like, and we'll be watching, we'll be watching you very closely from here on out. Number three is that you insist you're right, they insist they're right, which means now it's their word against yours. And I have to ask you to leave because I've known them longer than I've known you. So of these three choices, Nick, which one, you know, do you want to go with? Because it sounds like I, I need to go talk to them and get things sorted out. Okay, just do it by this Saturday and we'll see what happens. Unfortunately uh, for him, it turns out number two was correct and he, we never saw him again. But, you know, moments like this, right? It forced me to grow. I, I'll, I'll tell people, I didn't want to be director. Like that wasn't anything I was just looking forward to, but the situation came down to, well, hey, Jerry, no one else is qualified. No one else is motivated. Please step in to fill this need. And, you know, take it for what it is. Right. I think a lot of the best leaders are ones that don't look for the title. Um, and that's a whole nother discussion. But um, I'd say, yeah, that is one instance that really shaped my approach to conflict resolution. One thing that you just said makes me wonder, yeah. what, what do you view as one of the most powerful qualities a leader can have hmm good question uh if i had to choose one um my favorite word for leadership is integrity and what i mean by that because that i don't want that to just sound like you know vague corporate speak integrity means um being clear about who you are that, you know, that there's consistency in, in your identity and what you say and what you do. So people have no question as to whether or not they can trust you. You know, do you honor promises? 
right? When you make a promise to you, do your best to keep it. And even if you failed, you still find a way to renegotiate. Um, do you, you know, have compassion for the people? Um, do you have integrity in your relationships? Like, are they strong? Um, and so, yeah, I think the most important thing is integrity saying, Hey, I know exactly who Jerry is and I know I can trust him. So I, I did this exercise with my daughter where we, we basically came up with our mantra or motto mm -hmm. and we went through all of these qualities and characteristics that we would use to describe somebody that we with uh, without a doubt would follow mm -hmm. and would want to emulate yeah and one of those one of those characteristics one of those traits was integrity mm -hmm. and the exercise goes like this you you write down all of these qualities and then yeah. without fail you're going to find some that overlap in their meaning and you group those all together yeah and then you find the most powerful descriptor essentially mm -hmm. and get it down to about three or four yeah and then you define each one of those descriptors and Good. and how that really what those mean to you mm -hmm. and so those are your core values good and then you write a, a leadership statement around those nice what we came up with was wisdom before taking action know what you have control over and what you have zero control over. Good. Morality, mm. being empathetic, compassionate, and ethical in your actions. Mm. And that was, so a lot of this really falls under integrity. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the third is fortitude. Mm perseverance in the face right. of adversity, being courageous when it is easier and less painful to succumb to your fears. Okay. Moderation, tempering your words and behavior through self-control. Mm. Now, we, we use these uh, to, to write our mantra and our mantra is leadership through virtue and action. And what I've done is I've actually made that as the, the motto, the, the part of my logo. However, I, I translated it into Latin to give it mm -hmm. some flair, you know. So it's ductu per virtutem et actionem. Wow. Leadership through virtue and action. And it's wisdom, morality, fortitude, and moderation. Nice. And... In that, that integrity component, I, I can give you some of my own personal experiences with integrity because mm -hmm. I've made some really bad decisions in my past that do not reflect my values. Fair enough. And it, 
really brought into question my integrity, something that I value. And as a leader, and as a leader that had earned a lot of respect Mm. from not just my peers, but the people above me and the people that I led, when my integrity came into question, Mm -hmm. that was soul crushing. So... as a coach, as a leadership coach, mm-hmm. because I know that I'm not the only one that's ever gone through that, that existential crisis right there. Mm-hmm. How would you coach somebody through that? Through some kind of like failure in that regard? Right. The, okay. that, that overcoming that failure and in integrity. Hmm. Yeah. How how do you rebuild that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, uh, I'll, I'll share a moment uh, that I had with Mike uh, when I was recapping when I got fired, right? Because that technically was a break in integrity for me. And I thought about all the struggles that I had to, you know, fight for gainful employment after that. And I remember telling him, you know, this was like seven years ago. It's like getting fired had to be one of the worst things that ever happened to me. And Mike goes, pauses for a second, I guess, because you look at it as the best thing that's ever happened to you. And it just kind of judo flipped the situation on me. And I said, you know what? I guess I have to. What do I tell people now? Getting fired was the wake-up call I needed to really set me on this path of self-improvement and realizing, hey, whatever you're doing, it's not working for you, right? So you know, it's, it's tough. You don't want to condone any, anything that's a, you know, really bad moral failure, right? Like I, I had a, I know at least, you know, one youth pastor that had to step down because of an affair, like it's just ugly, right? But the blessing and the silver lining in that is that, you know, that's the wake up call you need, right? And I wouldn't try to state this case to the client. I would just ask them, what if this was the best that never happened to you? And just kind of let that sit and see if they're willing to fill in their own evidence to make that question uh, or that posture true. Because they don't have to. They could say, no, I don't, I don't see how this could be the best thing that ever happened to me. But for my side commentary, honestly, when you have a moment where expectations get reset and you have no choice to go anywhere but up, what if that's the best thing to happen to you? It's very freeing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What you just said is um is right on, right on the money. I I found myself really going, man, I I'm not who I thought I was, you know. Mm -hmm. And you start questioning, like, gosh, you know, I'm a fraud, I'm this, I'm that. Yeah. But the reality is, is that people make mistakes. Yeah. People have lapses in judgment for whatever reason. And if that is a true flaw in your character, it's going to be represented in more than just one instance, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And 
if it's not represented in more than just one instance, then you can look at it as, man, this was a huge opportunity for me mm -hmm. to learn, like, holy crap, I've mm -hmm. got to be a lot more careful with my, mm -hmm. my decisions, with yeah. my behaviors, and yeah. really be more disciplined. Socrates said, the way to gain a good reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear endeavor to be what you desire to appear because you can spend your entire life building this impeccable reputation mm -hmm. but in an instant you can lose it yeah so to overcome that loss of reputation well that's not mm -hmm. the end of the world mm -hmm. it's just a reset yeah and and so like I, I i feel like at this point in our conversation we're possibly speaking to those people that are you know that have struggled with that or maybe they're coaching somebody that mm -hmm. is experiencing that mm -hmm existential crisis where you know yeah. they made a mistake and they're like really down on themselves well mm -hmm. what you said can you flip it and mm -hmm. and make it frame it as is this the best thing that could have happened to you yeah. because now you can go on to do bigger and better things yeah you know, and this isn't, I don't want people to think, oh, we're just being cheesy and saying, well, you can always look on the bright side of life. It's like, no, this sucks. Like, it hurts, yeah. you know? And I mean, same thing, you know, another situation I had to deal with was that at one point I had to evict a roommate, right? He defaulted on his lease and basically hid in his room and, and banked on the idea that I was too nice to actually follow through with evicting him until, you know, I got tired of dealing with it. And I told him, you know, yeah, you got to, leave before I call the cops. Like you've, I've given you more than enough extensions. You've not shown me anything, any return, you know, on the grace I've given you. If you're not going to contribute to living costs, you need to leave. And when he realized he couldn't keep giving me vague promises about how soon he'd have the money, you know, he finally moved out. And, you know, shortly after he moved out, he actually ended up getting a job. And, you know, so I'm not here to dance on his grave and be like, hi, you know, I showed him. You know, I was sad that I even had to go through with this process, right? It's like when a parent disciplines their kids, you're just like, I hate to have to do this to you, but I know the cost of not disciplining, right? And the fact that he realized, hey, maybe hitting rock bottom was the wake up call to say, okay, I can't just, you know, bank on Jerry's like, you know, uh, generosity anymore. I need to actually man up and get a job. I'd like to think that somehow this is a catalyst. One thing that I'm curious about when yeah. when you're coaching other asian americans what would you consider to be a, a common theme that you work with them hmm. on developing yeah great question um in in the conversations i've had with asian clients um uh, i think it's just learning to take that initiative um to speak up on things that you want to address like that somehow to realize that that's not selfish or 
uh, you know, diva-ish to bring up certain things. You know, one client I had, he was afraid that he was going to lose his job in the next round of cuts, right, during a really tough economy. And so, you know, we talked through, you know, well, what's, what's something you can do to keep this from happening? And he came up with the idea to, you know, set aside time with his boss and talk about, hey, boss, you know, what skills would you recommend I acquire so that I can stay employed with the company, right? Like, you don't have to, like, wait for crap to hit the fan before you have to do anything. But you can be more proactive with that. Um, same thing with my another client. She dealt with a passive-aggressive boss, very temperamental. He tried to call her off the clock. She ignored his call because she was like, I'm not working right now. He blew up at her the next day. Why didn't you answer my phone call? I don't think you're that committed to this place. And she comes to me. She's like, Jerry, I don't know how to handle my frustration without possibly losing my job if I antagonize him further. How do I handle this conversation, right? So yeah, just be more proactive when something, when you know crap's going to go down. Hey, let's, let's put you in a position to do something productive about it. We've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you feel we should we should touch on? I'll share one story I haven't shared in a while, just to, you know, number one, just kind of give a, an exclusive for you, and also just to, I think, a unique learning moment um, for for anyone who may not be familiar with, uh, you know, my background or situation. So. In high school, at one point after school, some friends and I were playing hacky sack. And, you know, a lot of teachers weren't a fan of it. And so during school, they would confiscate them. But, you know, after school, it shouldn't matter. But uh, two older white women approached me uh, while we were playing and, and with the idea that they were going to compensate or not compensate, com confiscate my, my hacky sack. And, you know, we said, hey, look, we don't know why this is the problem. It's after school. We can do what we want, right? We're not causing any distractions. And I happened to be wearing a T-shirt uh, with some Japanese sumo wrestler artwork. And, you know, for those of you familiar with sumo wrestler garb, uh, you know, there isn't a lot there. It basically looks like a diaper, you know. And so one of the teachers looks at the shirt, like pulls it and shows the other teacher, can you believe you would wear something like this? Like to school and i'm like i don't understand how this is in violation of the dress code it's an ancient japanese tradition and the other teacher goes well turn your ancient japanese tradition inside out <laughs> and they both laugh and walk away what do you do in a situation like that right how is this okay right who am i to say anything i'm a freshman in high school is our, you know, there's no diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops, right? This is like, you know, mid-90s. So part of my chip on my shoulder, you could say, is to give other Asians the courage so that when things like this happen, they don't have to just sit idly by and just say, well, I guess I'm just going to have to forgive them and hope that I get over it. You can still forgive them. That's still, you know, forgiveness is not about whether or not someone deserves it. And in forgiving them, you can still say, hey, I'm not going to condone this. Um, there's something better. Uh, there's a better standard for all of us to, to aspire to. It's a great story. And there are, and this is something that, you know, as 
uh, a white male, I, I realize that I'm kind of clueless to a lot of the prejudice that other groups have to endure. Mm-hmm. One, I mean, I, I know that what, what is more prominent in the United States that's really kind of mm-hmm. more in the media is the, the prejudice towards African-Americans mm-hmm. or towards Middle Easterners. Mm-hmm. Not a lot is spoken of, at least in you know, the, the Southeast, about mm-hmm. prejudice towards Asian-Americans. Yeah. Um, would you attribute that to the culture as being like more like just keep your head down let's not make any waves that's part of it yeah i mean because right all these immigrants right they're just like hey we're just we're really not trying to tread on anybody and if we deal with injustices okay we're just going to um, internalize them and yeah i mean that's why there's so many great books written on the topic you know the invisible minority the model minority it's all there right and even worse, you know, people leverage our, our, you know, cultural profile against us, right? And say, y'all are just complaining. Look at these Asians, they're so well-behaved. And, you know, it doesn't matter what they deal with, they never complain. And it's like, but Asians are dying, right? Like there are hate crimes that were, you know, well-publicized and hate crimes, you know, during the last four or five years, even. It's like people blaming Chinese for the coronavirus, right? Um, you know, one thing I tell people, uh, I learned this the hard way, uh, Houston's Chinatown is built on discrimination. At one point, all the politicians said, we don't want you all kind here. We're going to put you in the southwest part of the city. And even worse, uh, they actually divide the district up in such a way there's no political vote for that district. They said, okay, we got to put them in this part of the city and make sure they have no political leverage, right? And so, um, yeah. It's, it's just an ugly situation because on one hand, yeah, you read about how China wants to be the next U.S. They want to be the next world power. And so people are, you know, scared that China is going to overtake the U.S. in some form or fashion. But that doesn't apply to every Asian. And so on one hand, there is a real threat because the U.S. in some ways has gotten complacent in how, how great we are. And, you know, we've done a lot of good things. There's a reason why immigrants come here because they want a better life in themselves that they couldn't offer themselves otherwise, staying where they were. And, you know, it's just a complicated relationship, right? Uh, when people say, well, you know, my immigrants, it's okay for us to find a better life here. But as soon as other people also want a better life here, but they're taking away from us, then, you know, that's a problem we need to shut them out. It's like, okay, um, maybe we revisit that and figure out exactly how to have a better solution where we can lift everybody up uh, with uh, move from a scarcity mindset right to an abundance mindset to say, hey, you know what, if we're willing to trust that, yeah, if resources can be finite, but if there's a way that we can uh, be more uh, willing to be generous with each other, uh, maybe there's a way for that we can all be seen, heard, and respected. What you just said makes me think of something that is, I, I, I think, one of the main tenets of leadership, tenets of leadership. Yeah. yeah. And that is 
the purpose or mm. the main obligation that yeah. a leader takes upon themselves when they when they assume that role when they mm -hmm. accept that responsibility they're obligating themselves to really ensuring the success of those people that, mm -hmm. that they're leading Good. and on a much bigger picture what i've found throughout and, and and i've said this on a bunch of different episodes a bunch of different mm -hmm. interviews yeah throughout history mm -hmm. whether it's eastern philosophy you know greek philosophy the mm -hmm. uh, middle eastern philosophies western philosophy whatever like mm -hmm. you can look at all the religions but throughout yeah. them all there's a common thread mm -hmm. that each one of us is responsible for adding value to those around us good it's it's not about us mm -hmm. as an individual it's about the group and good if we as leaders can really embrace that and 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 lead others to that realization mm -hmm. that cutting uh, people out of the equation is not the way mm -hmm. i i just i don't know if i stated that clearly i mean does it make sense to you it made sense to me you know yeah um we we want this idea of the self-made man, right? Like, oh, he worked hard and he and he persevered. And it's like, well, there is a, a role of individual effort for sure. And to deny all the resources and help that came before you to kind of lift you up to that point, right? Is to be ungrateful, right? Isaac Newton said, if I've been able to see further than any other man, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants, right? As much as I get frustrated with my parents for you know, some of the conflict and what they define as success and the deferred life plan and, you know, the reason to get married and have kids, you know, and, you know, how we define stability, right? I wouldn't be here without their help. They took a chance by coming over from Taiwan in an effort to have a better life for themselves, right? And in the process, you know, poured tons of resources into me to be sure I could become a responsible adult. And not just them, there are friends along the way that were generous, other coaches that were kind enough to share their resources, right? And so we have this collective where we realize, hey, yeah, for me to simply ask you to be on your podcast, to elevate my platform is foolish and unprofessional and selfish, right? Um, but for me to completely give up my own things just so other people can sacrifice at my expense uh, it doesn't have to be that way, right? It's a shared benefit. Um, and we're both hopefully better off for having this conversation, everyone listening to this conversation. Um, yeah, on one hand, yeah, you know, parents give, right? Like sacrifice because you're not worried about getting anything back. But what if there is a way to, for what, you know, what if there is a shared benefit for both of you? My mom, you know, was actually very honest I haven't said this out loud until now. She made it clear that 
she had kids because, you know, who else is going to take care of her in old age? <laughs> and she wants me to have kids because that's the extreme long game. Hey, like the only way you're going to have anyone that's really going to look out for you is if you have blood ties and, you know, cultural obligation standards that hold them uh, to say, hey, you're, you owe your parents, right? And, you know, that's not healthy either. <laughs> but all that to say, you're right. There is a collective there. Um, to say, hey, this isn't just for me, it's for the people around me. Uh, if I have a circle of influence, let me be faithful to it. Well, I have a term for it yeah. called, it's called selfish altruism. There you go. So, and the idea behind it is mm -hmm. in order for you to be of benefit to the people that you're leading, you yeah. have to work very hard at adding as much value to yourself as yeah. possible True. so that you can turn around and add that value to your team. Good. The more value that you add to your team, the more high performing your team is. Yes. The more high performing your team is, the more mm -hmm. everybody benefits, including yourself. Okay. And you, you operate in this fashion where you know it is your responsibility mm -hmm. to, to help elevate your team. Yeah. You know, and if each person on that team has that same obligation, that's that same sense of responsibility, it just, it's an incredible, an incredible thing mm -hmm. to be on one of those teams. Yeah. But as it takes at least one person to say, this is how this team is going to operate. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely effective, but it's a mindset that has to be developed. And, mm -hmm. but it's, it's an awesome thing. And if mm -hmm. it could be applied on a much grander scale, what a great place this world would be, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Everybody wins. Gary, I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the show, allowing me to have this conversation with you. And yeah. like I said earlier, I'll have a link to your website in the show notes. And, um, you know, if anybody wants to, to reach out to you, employ you for your, your coaching services or to have mm -hmm. you come speak, yeah. that's, that's the best way to get in touch with you, correct? Yeah, just check out www.adaptingleaders.com. You can get that free guide to download if you need a framework to handle hard conversations. So you can schedule a complimentary 30-minute call, talk to me about your situation that you need help with, or just check out the blog where I summarize useful, interesting leadership books. So um, whatever you do, check out the website. That's where all the goodies are. Awesome. Oh, I almost forgot. Three books that you would recommend. Yeah, yeah. Um, so many to pick from, but if I had to pick three now, number one, uh, Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. Uh, you know, they give you a framework how to compensate for the blind spots and biases that we tend to fall into as humans. Number two, um, I would say The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungie Stanier. Seven questions that every coach uh, or any leader really should use uh, in, their, in their leadership style to help uh, have them have to say less and really grow their team. And then three, um, Atomic Habits, James Clear. That's that's a fun one just to say, hey, how do I make 
good habits more appealing and bad habits disappear. How do I do that on a micro level? And I think uh, anyone would benefit from these for sure. Well, thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.